Nehemiah is a fascinating story of visionary leadership. A story of visionary leadership. Nehemiah had a vision of what could be done. And he, the story tells us of how, having got that vision for himself, he then inspired people to get on and work with him to build something good and reliable. The vision that he had stemmed from his grief. There are many good things which happen because something sad occurs. Remember how the first chapter, which you would have heard about last week, I think, Nehemiah hears about the sadness of the fact that his home country has, is lying in ruins. That causes great grief in his heart. And the sadness is so strong that he cannot hide it from the king. He was in a special sort of position where he, he, he had to be cheerful. The king would not want his cupbearer being there with a gloomy face. He wouldn't want to see tears welling up in his cupbearer's eyes. But such was Nehemiah's sadness at the condition of his country that he could not hide it. Now, Nehemiah could, of course, have thought to himself, um, I will put on a, a, a cheerful expression, I will make the most of the position I'm in, which was a respected one, an important one, as cupbearer to the king. He could have compromised with uh, the people amongst whom he was living and done nothing about what God wanted him to do. This is 140 years on since Nebuchadnezzar had entered the, uh, and taken the people of Israel away to be slaves. 140 years, what's that? Four generations on from that time? When I, when I used to start thinking about the story of Nehemiah, I'd think of it as happening very soon after the Israelites had been taken away. But no, 140 years Artaxerxes is after Nebuchadnezzar, according to at least the, the notes that I've got here. So it's quite remarkable, isn't it, that the people had continued and had remembered such that Nehemiah was thinking about, still thinking about his own home country. He could have been somebody who would have compromised and enjoyed the rich life that there was to share in the palace of Artaxerxes. After all, he was the, he was the king, he was the ruler, he had plenty. And here was Nehemiah in a great position. He could have said, I will settle down and have a peaceful life. But the honour of Nehemiah's family and of his God was a matter of greater concern to him. And it, it touched him to the point where he could not eat or sleep. And that showed in his facial expression. Sometimes we have to go through sad times in order to inspire us to do something good. Perhaps we need to think of ourselves to, to, to come to a point where we are trying to understand the grief that God, God has when he looks at our world in order to inspire us to do what he wants us to do. What I observe about Nehemiah in this story is that he led by example. Last week, well, there's been a lot of these letters, haven't there, from soldiers who were killed in the First War. Um, 
have been read, have been, that have been retained by their families and have been read and treasured. Uh, and last week, I think it was on the Antiques Roadshow, they were sharing a, a letter um, of this nature where a soldier had written about how fed up the soldiers were with having to be in these terrible conditions. And I think the wording was something like this. If the politicians want to keep on fighting, let them fight their own war. And it was more or less saying, it's all very well for these people back in London or wherever to, uh, to, to, to want to keep fighting. They're not the ones who are experiencing what we're experiencing. Now, Nehemiah wasn't a leader like that. He was the one who put himself in the position in front of the king to ask the king for permission to go. Don't ask someone to do something if you're not willing to do it yourself. You know, Nehemiah could have said to one of the other uh, Israelites, or he could even have spoken to one of the uh, Artaxerxes officials and said, would you ask the king for me? if you would mind if I took a few months off to go to um, Jerusalem and start to see what's going on there? You know, that, that might have been the approach we'd have taken, isn't it? But no, Nehemiah is there in the presence of the king and his queen sitting by him. Did you notice that little detail? It's, it's quite, I don't know why that's there in a way, is it? But anyway, she was there, anyway, in a splendid situation. Perhaps her glamour uh, was such that, you know, he particularly noticed it. It was a, it was a royal event, and he was there and he was gloomy and he says, will, will you let me have time to go to my home country and do this? He took the plunge for himself. He's led by example. And I want to say this, I want to note this. Nehemiah acted with a mixture of faith and boldness. Faith and boldness. How often when someone asks you, are you okay, like the king asked the cupbearer, asked Nehemiah, you reply, oh, I'm okay. Or, um, oh, yes, I just didn't sleep very well last night. And Nehemiah could have made an excuse like that, couldn't he? He was asked the question, oh, I'm all right, really. Sorry, it's just um, my mood today. <laughs> but no, he took the opportunity that the question gave him with boldness and bravery, really, and courage to say, this is the real cause of my sadness. And I think that was a very, very brave thing to do. We often try to cover things up, perhaps because as Christians, we think people expect us always to be cheerful. But the truth is rather different. There are things which should make us mourn. How blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So why do people mourn? Why are people sad? Yes, they grieve the loss of loved ones. They may mourn in self-pity about the passing years of their own lives. Or perhaps the real causes of our grief are the things that make sad the heart of God. And that was the case with Nehemiah, wasn't it? He was close enough to God's thoughts to grieve at the destruction of God's city of the city of the people of God. But it does take a step of courage, stemming from faith, to take some action when we see the plight of those around us. We need to be willing to get on and do something about it. And perhaps we need sometimes to take a step back from, our, from what we're, when we concentrate on our own lives, 
to allow and ask God to show us his heart of love for others around us so that we might grieve with God about what is going on in our world in order that that might stem in confidence and taking some step that God may want us to take. And of course, Nehemiah's bravery in this story, his his boldness, if you like, in speaking out from his own mind, in his own position, was rewarded. The king responded positively to his request so that he could do something about the plight of this city. Indeed, to use a New Testament phrase, we could say that God did far more abundantly than Nehemiah could have asked or thought as the king sent him on his way, not only saying, yes, you can go, but you can have soldiers and supplies for safety as you travel and to make sure that your trip is not in vain. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Little little verse about, um, or little saying about sadness. The soul would have no rainbow had the eye no tears. Think about that. The soul would have no rainbow had the eye no tears. There we are. Sometimes our sadness may be there, but there's a rainbow in our hearts as we respond, as God responds to our action. The other little thing I noticed when I was reading through this passage is that Nehemiah didn't say that this was his doing. Nehemiah gave glory to God for opening the door. God made this possible in his graciousness. That was the word that was was read to us, wasn't it? God was gracious. God was generous in opening the way for Nehemiah to go. As Nehemiah writes this simple record of what happens, he acknowledges that all this happens because God had intervened to accomplish it. It's another example of how God works in and through people to achieve his purposes. It's an intriguing question that the book doesn't answer as to how Nehemiah got this position as cupbearer to the king in the first place. It's a bit like Joseph ending up as Pharaoh's right-hand man or Daniel and his friends in the courts of of Nebuchadnezzar. But that teaches us to recognise that God has placed us in the places that we're in, where we may be. You're the right person in the right place for what God wants you to do. Just as Nehemiah was put in that position by God for this particular task, you have a position that you're in because God has put you there for your task, for your time, for what God wants you to do. The next point I wanted to make as I read through this story is that Nehemiah kept his vision to himself until he'd properly surveyed what was needed. Thursday, um, I had to go to London for a meeting in a very plush solicitor's office in the centre of, in the city of London. And so I was sat in a meeting room on the 15th floor with glass, you know, right from the floor right up to the ceiling. Uh, And uh, you could look out across... uh, in various parts of the, uh, of the area around. And um, I saw a man hanging beside a wall about five store floors down from where we were. And um, he was inspecting the walls. Right? <laughs> now, obviously, he had his 
high-vis jacket on and his hat on like we had with the youngsters here. And um, I'm, I'm sure he was very safely roped up and that um, the, the workmates who were at the top would have pulled him back safely up and uh, what he was doing was uh, perfectly safe and in order. Uh, it's not something I would want to do, hang off a wall ha- halfway up. A very, very brave thing to do, I think. But the inspection that was made by Nehemiah was probably much less safe, even though he might not have been quite so high up in the, in the air. Um, he went at night. The ground would have been strewn with broken bricks or rocks, all sorts of other things that might have tripped them up. The walls were probably unstable, so there was a risk of rocks falling. I guess he didn't have a safety harness or a helmet. But this shows Nehemiah's courage again, that he was willing to take that risk of danger in order to find out what needed to be done, to make a proper inspection of the work that he believed God was calling him to do. His tour of inspection was necessary because before he made plans, he wanted to know exactly what was needed. He wanted to put together a rational and a workable plan to achieve the results. He wanted to work out how many people he needed and where they needed to be. And we'll come, you'll come on to that later in the, in the story. There's every reason when God calls us to do something to plan carefully. Not to simply say, I believe God wants me to do this, so rush in without really thinking carefully about what this involves. We need to plan ahead if God has given us, a, given us a call to do something, to sit down and work out what we are going to do. Having done this, having surveyed what was needed, he shared the vision with his fellow people. He shared the vision with his fellow Jews. And so that caused me to ask a question of myself. How good am I at sharing vision with other people, at encouraging people in what needs to be done? And conversely, how good am I at hearing and receiving someone else's vision and getting on board with what God is calling me to do? Have I reached that cynical state I think it was when Eli was around, wasn't it? Before Samuel, there were not many visions. Have I got to a position, because I'm getting older, where the old man's dreams and the young man's visions of Joel's prophecy have come and have gone? When we were all younger, we felt enthusiastic about what we believe God wanted us to do and how we believe God wanted to change the world in which we live. Do we need a new inspiration to come from God. Perhaps we've seen visions and we feel now, well, do we really see them fulfilled? How strongly is the vision of what God wants to do amongst us still burning in our own hearts? I think we need, particularly in this time as you've just come into uh, a, a pastoral vacancy in your church, just to pray again for God's renewed vision yourselves, that you will see what God wants to do here, what he's encouraging you to do here, what he's able to do here, to build you up as his people in this place. And I believe that as we look at the world around us, our country around us as well, we need to be seeing new vision 
for what God is able to do to bring new generations of believers to worship and serve him here and all around us. So as Nehemiah shares what, with the people what he wants them to do, they get that, they get that vision. They see, they see what, it, what can be done and they say, yes, let's get on and build. And the very first thing that happens is that there is opposition. The very first thing. As soon as um, Nehemiah has said what he's going to do, Along comes Sanballat and Tobiah and those, uh, those people who, who lived around and didn't want to see God's city strong. And there's almost an inevitability about opposition to what God wants to do. There are those who say it cannot be done, or who think that the, that the plan may affect their own schemes. There are those who might think we could do things differently, that we're wasting resources or time, that this isn't the right way to go. There are always going to be those who will try to defeat what God wants to do in terms of his kingdom. But Nehemiah stood firm in the face of it. And that's what, uh, uh, what, what is so interesting here. Yes, there were those who opposed, but Nehemiah said, I know that what I'm doing is God's will. He had that strength of resolve, that determination that said, I'm going to get on and do this, come what may, because this is what is right Hebrews 12, run with perseverance, the race set before you. Just as many are doing in the London Marathon this morning, running with perseverance. But there's Nehemiah. He wasn't going to be put off by those who said it can't be done. He'd taken stock of what needed to be done. It can be done because God will enable us to do it. It's God's will. God will make it possible, even however, it may, however impossible it might seem, however much opposition there might appear to be. God will do it, and it will be done. And that's the mark of a real leader, isn't it, to say, I know God's in this. Come on, let's get on, and let's do it. But this led me then to think another thing, and maybe to ask a few another question, and you know, maybe one or two of you want to share things with me. What are the breached and broken walls that we see in our own lives or in our own community? What are the things that are broken down? Where are the places that God wants to restore just think about that for a moment. Because this story we've read can be a picture for us of our own situation, our own community. What are the signs that the walls are broken down? Where is there rubble? Maybe in the way people live their lives, the the way in which they take for themselves and don't think of others. Maybe in broken relationships, family relationships around us. Maybe in broken church relationships sometimes too. It's a sign the walls are broken down. We need to be restored in our relationships with one another and with all God's people. We look at the church around us and 
in so many places we see an older generation but nothing in terms of the younger generation coming in is the church being broken down in those places how is God building his church now how is God bringing restoration where is God wanting you to carry out your piece of building for his kingdom do we have a vision to build again God's church with him in the area that we are so that because you see what what Nehemiah was trying to do here it wasn't just going to build these walls just for the sake of having a nice good looking architectural future you know where all the tourists would come and say yes what a wonderful city this is it wasn't going to be like that see Nehemiah realized that the city of Jerusalem was a symbol of God's presence it was where the people of Israel had built something strong where God could be worshipped and honored and likewise the us as people of God are here to be a place where God dwells where God lives where God is able to work and to bring glory to himself and so building God's people is a case of allowing God to come and live amongst us and that makes a difference to the whole community in which we live we've got to try and understand what God is asking us to do in order that he can be present amongst us don't just sit here and expect someone else to take a lead in encouraging the church to grow and follow God maybe you're the one to do the Nehemiah bit to encourage people to fulfill God's plan for this place and for our wider community perhaps you're someone who wants to sit on the sidelines rather than getting involved in what God wants you to do just as imagine what God can achieve through us if we have that faith that courage that Nehemiah had to follow the vision which Christ sets before us looking only unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith let's get together um, and listen to what God is saying and let's perhaps perhaps we can adopt verse 18 of Nehemiah 2 as a, a sort of word that we acknowledge together Nehemiah said I've told you I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me what the king had said to me he said come let us rebuild the wall and we will no longer be in disgrace and they replied and this is what I want us all to reply let us start rebuilding and not only did they reply that and so they began the good work we've got a great work that God is calling us to do to build his kingdom to grow his people to see his kingdom come on earth let's start rebuilding let's begin the good work and may God give us his blessing as we do so. Amen.